This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day Nasudoceratops, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. A bunch. <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> yes. But first, as always, we'd like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, Ranger Chris from Dinosaur for Hire, and Ray. And Ray's new, so thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you to all of our patrons, too. If you want to get in on this action, <laughs> check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Or you can grab that link from anywhere you see our name written, like our website or the show notes or anywhere. True. Jumping right into the news, we have the first new dinosaur of the year. No. Oh. <laughs> yep. Didn't take long. No. We got into the 40s last year. There's actually been several that have already been announced, but this is the first one that was actually published. Had a published date, I think, of January 11th in Pier J, and it was written by Matthew Hearn and others, and it was discovered in Australia. They actually dug it out about 10 years ago, but as these things go, it takes a long time <laughs> to fully excavate them and prepare them and then get them ready for publication. They named the dinosaur Diluvicursor Pickeringi, and Diluvicursor is a combination of Diluvi for flood and Cursor for runner. So you could combine that to mean flood runner, <laughs> but... <laughs> It might be more like flood dire <laughs> because they think that it got swept up in a flood oh. and that's how we ended up with it getting fossilized. So maybe flood doesn't run fast enough or... <laughs> <laughs> oh no. But good for us. Yeah. I mean, anything that got fossilized always died first. Or maybe, yeah, it had to die before it got fossilized. And usually it gets fossilized because it gets buried really quickly. So... A lot of time that's in things like floods or sand dune collapses and lots of stuff like that. But anyway, the species name Pickeringi refers to David A. Pickering, who was an Australian paleontologist that passed away during the project. So they honored him with the species name of the dinosaur. So that's nice. It is. It was a, quote, turkey to rhea-sized small-bodied ornithopod and... 
They estimate the adults were about 2.3 meters or seven and a half feet long. With dinosaurs, though, like the length is always a little bit bigger than you think of when you're thinking of modern animals. Because if you think of something that's seven and a half feet long, you think, wow, that's really long. But actually, like half of that is tail. So it is more like a turkey with a tail kind of size. <laughs> <laughs> it was found in Eric the Red West formation, which is a really funny name for a formation, I think. And it's in Cape Otway, Victoria, about 100 miles southwest of Melbourne, in a really nice looking spot for doing some paleontology. It's not like the Badlands or Northern Canada or anything. <laughs> it's like right on the coast. It looks really pretty. It's on what they call a shore platform, which reminds me of the tide pools here in California. So just, peaceful. Yeah, just kind of a pleasant place to be. I could see it might be a little difficult to do paleontology there since there's ocean, you know, kind of attacking you and your site while you're excavating maybe. but Attacking? <laughs> You know, if you're trying to do like fine work with tools and there are waves splashing on you, it could be annoying. Yeah. So now it's on the coast, obviously, but in the Cretaceous, it was probably still kind of stuck to Antarctica there, which is why they call it fluvial. That relates to rivers and rivers flooding in this case. And by the sandstone in the area, they actually estimate that the river was between one and 10 kilometers wide. So it was a pretty massive river. I'm not quite sure if that meant while it was flooded. I think so, since that would be when the sandstone was deposited. The formation is from about 113 million years ago, which puts it in the middle of the Cretaceous. And they found that Diluvi Cursor is probably more closely related to Argentinian and Antarctic ornithopods than other ornithopods. And that's a little surprising to me, but I'm not sure. They might not be including some of the close relatives that are still unnamed, mm -hmm. like NMV P185992 and 93. Sure. <laughs> Those are both from Australia, but they are not nearly as complete as Diluvi Cursor. They found a nearly complete tail and part of its right leg and foot, which isn't that much, but I think we mentioned on an earlier episode how... Australian dinosaurs tend to be the least complete of any continent's dinosaur finds just because there are so few dinosaurs recovered there. I think the average was something like 10 or 15% of the dinosaurs. So this is more than that, at least. Oh, good. Yeah, bringing the average up a little bit. The paleo art of Diluvi Cursor is by a rushing river, not surprisingly. And it's kind of cool because they actually chose to depict it from behind, which kind of makes sense since we know more about the tail and the leg than the head, obviously. And its demise. Yeah, that's true. The Eric the Red West Sandstone <laughs> is coarse and includes, quote, compacted, colified slash carbonized river transported tree limbs and branches and logs up to one meter in diameter and some up to five meters in length and tree stumps with root bases and attached soil, end quote. Which obviously makes it seem like there was some pretty powerful water going through the area mm -hmm. to move that massive amount of wood as well as presumably ripping trees out of the ground. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah, pretty crazy. And the thickness of the deposit is about 25 meters, which is approaching 100 feet thick. 
And like I said before, they used that to estimate how wide the river was, which is a pretty cool move that I didn't know you could do before. But they cited some article from the 70s. So I guess if I was a sedimentologist, this would be old news that you could do this kind of thing. <laughs> the researchers also say that they have more material from the area that's still unpublished, including some aquatic reptiles and hopefully some more dinosaurs since... Like I said before, Australia doesn't have very many, and the ones they have tend to be pretty incomplete. You never have enough fossils. Nope. Especially with dinosaurs. Up next, I've got an article from last year that I've been waiting to talk about, but there were other articles that were more exciting, so it kind of got pushed back a little bit. It was written by Waisu Ma and others and published in Nature Scientific Reports, and what they did was they were taking a close look at a gigantoraptor beak and jaw, which you probably know are both toothless, but gigantoraptor is way bigger than most of its relatives, which is pretty strange, and it leads to the obvious question of, did it have some sort of different behavior? Did it eat anything different? What's up with it being so huge? <laughs> like, what can we tell from the fossils that we have about it? So as a quick background, Gigantoraptor is in Ovaraptorosauria, which has a subgroup Cenanathidae and Ovaraptoridae. And Cenanathids include animals like Anzu and Gigantoraptor. So that's the one that they were probably the most interested in the study. But they also looked at the other subgroup of Cenanathidae, which is Ovaraptorids, which you might not be surprised to find out includes Ovaraptor as well as Chidipati. And a quick description of the difference, Ovaraptorids appear to have jaws which are better for more powerful bites. So the researchers say they're more likely to eat food by kind of crushing it. Whereas Cenanathids tend to have less deep beaks and muscles that make it look like their jaw might move back and forth a little bit, which would be really useful for shearing for instance, if you're eating tough plants. So that's kind of the general distinction so far. Gigantoraptor is a little bit in the middle of the two. It has a deeper beak than other cenanathids, but it also has those muscle attachment points so it could move its jaw forward and backward. So it's somewhere maybe in the middle, maybe it did some shearing and crushing, or the researchers mentioned maybe it was doing something else and it just needed both of those features, the stronger jaw and the shearing ability, in order to eat whatever it was eating. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't just shearing plants and crushing seeds, and it was, I don't know, chomping into some other dinosaur or something and needed a beak like that. Who's to say? Interesting. Yeah, they kind of left it a little bit open-ended with what it might have been doing with the combination. Needs more fossils. Yeah, I guess so. Or maybe even just different types of fossils, like gut contents. I know how you like gut contents. Yep. Also falls under the category of needs more fossils. <laughs> yep. And next, thanks to Stefan on Patreon for... <laughs> that rhymes. For sharing with us a new article in Pure J, written by Kimberly Chappelle and others. And what they did was they made a 3D model of a massospondylus skull, and they used a CT scan to do it, unsurprisingly. The cool thing about it is they were able to recreate some small bones in the matrix or behind other bones of the skull that previously they couldn't quite see or get a good view of. 
and they found that not all bones were fused, so it looks like at least this specimen was still growing when it died. So it's still a teenager, maybe? Potentially? Yeah. Massospondylus is a sauropodomorph, similar to Platyosaurus, and you probably remember they have long-ish necks. They're kind of halfway between quadrupedal and bipedal, so they have like medium-length arms. <laughs> They're usually depicted as standing on just their back legs as adults with their arms kind of arm-like, but people think that they probably also were on all fours a lot of the time. Sort of like Spinosaurus, I guess, except this one ate leaves. and a lot of other differences from spinosaurus yes (laughs) the cool thing about this article is that pure j is open access and they also published their 3d model in the paper so you can easily 3d print your own massospondylus skull just by downloading it from this article The other cool thing is they uploaded it as an STL file, which if you're familiar with 3D printers means that it's just pretty much totally ready to go. It's not some other sort of 3D model where you'd have to go through and adjust it a bunch of ways before you could print it. And it's just small enough to fit on my 3D printer. It's about eight inches long and four inches tall. It's a little bit less than that wide. It's a pretty narrow skull actually. Although I, I think I have to rotate it, so it's kind of at an angle in order to print it. Mm. <laughs> and I think I'll probably, because I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to print this guy, I'll probably split it in half like Thomas Hegna and, and Robert Johnson described in episode 122. We talked to them about 3D printing dinosaur skeletons and how to put them together and all the tips and tricks that they have. And one of the biggest ones was if you split it in half, and you print the left half and the right half separately, then you can glue them together and all the supports and stuff gets hidden in the middle. Whereas if you try to print it any other way, you'll end up with supports on the outside where you can see them. So that's pretty cool. I still need to figure out how to do that because I don't think that's a feature built into the basic 3D printing software, but it should be easy to take the file and just cut it in half. Sure. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to do it, download this and then listen to that interview where they give you all the tips on how to make a good dinosaur print. And they also gave a list of all the things you need, the different glues and kind of fillers and paints and things like that. And if you do a 3D printing, send us a picture. We'd love to see. Oh, for sure. And next, I got to attend the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology Conference in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, and specifically the Science Through Narrative Symposium, which was a really great experience. There were some amazing speakers, and I won't go through all of them here, but I just wanted to highlight the ones that at least touched on dinosaurs. So first, there was Glenn McIntosh, who did a talk called Using Narrative Film Structure and Technique to Engage an Audience. And his key takeaway was that complexity does not equal believability. Things are too complex, then maybe it looks a little stiff. His example actually was this BBC put out an example of a T-Rex and they figured out the movement and how it walked. But they only focused on, I think, its feet and legs. But they did this interactive kind of GIF thing. Uh, And... In their model, because they weren't focusing on the hands, its hands were going up and down, and a lot of people thought they looked like jazz hands, Mm. and (laughs) there are many, many comments on the internet. So you want to make sure you, I guess, focus on the whole and make it believable. (laughs) 
And Glenn has worked on Jurassic World as a lead animator. And that was really great to hear about his work there. Unfortunately, not allowed to talk too much about it, but he did drop some gems. So like Dimorphodon in the Jurassic World movie, you might remember that scene where they're attacking people. Those are the flying pterosaurs with teeth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that whole sequence was based on seagulls attacking real people. <laughs> That's funny. See, I knew it. You never trust those seagulls. <laughs> where, like, where did they get footage of seagulls attacking people? They were just watching them in the place where they were filming on location. Anyway, the whole idea is to try and find these moments and then take advantage of the dramatic effect of a shot. So maybe it's not seagulls specifically attacking people, but this idea generated out of seeing a seagull dive bombing a person. Next was Dr. Elizabeth Rega, who's from the Western University of Health Sciences, and her talk was called Visual Narrative and Jargon Minimization in Successful Anatomy Teaching. She does consultations with film and game studios for their characters and making sure things are anatomically correct. So one of her points was that only mammals have facial expression muscles, which I never thought about before. So extrapolating that dinosaurs did not have facial expression muscles, which I think we've talked about, but you don't really think about that when it comes to movies. So (laughs) her example was the closest thing to how a dinosaur would look facial expression wise is if you take an iguana. She said as an example and had maybe five photos of an iguana and she said, this is an iguana mad, this is an iguana sad, this is an iguana happy, and it was the exact same facial expression <laughs> in all of them. I wonder if it actually was experiencing those different emotions, <laughs> or if she just used the same picture over and over again. They were five different pictures, different okay. scenarios, same coloring, so maybe the same iguana. It's hard for me to tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. But so the reason that mammals have these facial expression muscles is so that they can suckle as babies and survive as a juvenile by being able to read adults and their moods. And so uh, Elizabeth actually worked on Disney's Dinosaur, that movie that came out around 2000. And to help give those dinosaurs a bit more personality, they kind of added some gruffness to the dinosaurs that were supposed to be the bad guys. And there might have been some expressions because you don't want your animated characters to look creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, totally deadpan the whole time. Yeah. So one of her takeaways is that more realistic equals more creepy. <laughs> I think, too, it might work if you made a movie about dinosaurs and they were purely acting like dinosaurs. But in that movie, they were pretty anthropomorphic and were talking and things like that. Mm -hmm. And once you start talking, you kind of need lips and then you might as well throw in smiles and stuff like that. Yeah. But if you're doing something more like... Walking with dinosaurs. Exactly. Then you can do the realistic facial expressions. And it would look really weird if they started smiling and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) That situation. So it just depends on the context. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So next was Dr. Stuart Sumita from Cal State San Bernardino, and his talk was on anatomy, animation, and visual effects, the reciprocal storytelling tools of biology and filmmaking. And he was talking about how reference material is really important. You have to know what the realistic stuff is before you can kind of start making it your own. And he said, quote, character isn't funny if you don't recognize something in it. Hmm. And another thing he said was that hands are the best communicating devices after faces. And Stuart, as you mentioned, also consults with film and game studios. Uh, He and Elizabeth are actually husband and wife, although I think they also work on a lot of separate projects. 
but he had five official rules and one sixth additional rule that he said. He said, you are what you eat. If you're a carnivore versus an herbivore, you're going to look a little bit different. We've talked about that before with carnivores. You have the more close set eyes. Herbivores are more widespread so that they can see everything around them. Size matters, age matters, and sex matters, the number of chromosomes that you have. Especially for people, he was saying women have longer legs and shorter torsos than men. So if you're trying to animate a female character, he gave an example of Zootopia, and you've got the male fox and the female bunny. If you put them side by side, you notice that the fox actually has a longer torso than the bunny, and the bunny has longer legs. Hmm. Also, skeletons matter because they help you understand how things move and determine the range of motion. And then the last sixth semi-official rule was that creatures and mythical beasts are built out of the stuff that we know about already, like dragons. And we've talked about that a bunch. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool to include that kind of detail. Yeah, and he also showed this Bob Kurtz film. It was one of his inspirations, and it was an advertisement from maybe the 70s or something. If you if you look for it on YouTube, you'll be able to find it. But it's an ad for Chevron, but it's about dinosaurs and how dinosaurs gave up their lives to be your fuel. So don't waste your fuel. This must have been during the gas crisis. That's funny. <laughs> Even though it's not really true. Yeah. But I'll take it if it made a dinosaur into a commercial. Well, it's a good... <laughs> It's a it, it's good animation, and Bob Kurtz always advocates that the reference material is really important and that knowing the science is important before making your own. Mm-hmm. That reminds me a little bit of Willis O'Brien with the dinosaurs that he made back in the teens and 20s for King Kong and some of the other films where he literally made skeletons inside his little armatures, his little creations, so that they would move more realistically. Because if you include the skeleton, you end up with more realistic motions. Their their limbs don't start doing crazy stuff. Yeah. There was also a talk from Angela Lapito from DreamWorks Feature Animation called The Collaboration of Feature Animation and the Scientific Community. And her takeaway was that stories are universal. Story is king and stories have stakes. You want to be able to show something. Don't just say it. And then she talked about, because she's from DreamWorks, she worked on How to Train Your Dragon. And Toothless, the main dragon from the movie, <laughs> apparently, I didn't realize, was a mix of a bat and a cat. It did look very bat-like. I was thinking it looked cat-like. But you, <laughs> once she said it and showed some clips, I saw both aspects. I love bats, though, so that's probably why I noticed that more. <laughs> <laughs> well, Toothless had 1,800 controls in his body and 400 in the face, so they could do some amazing animations and expressions with him. Oh, okay. So almost like muscles, sort of? Something like that, yeah. That's cool. And last, this one isn't terribly dinosaur-related, but it is about science and storytelling, so I thought it was interesting. It's Emily Lordicht uh, from American Institute of Physics. She did a talk called Tools for Science Communication from the Intersection of Journalism and Screenwriting. And she was talking about how emotion is important. And don't let the science get in the way of an effective story, but in a good way, which is kind of this idea of you want to keep people interested and engaged. So don't drive them away by just listing a bunch of facts. 
Yeah, that's a problem I have a lot <laughs> because it's true that when you personalize stories and you talk specifically about an individual who went out and discovered a dinosaur and what their life has been like, it can be a lot more compelling than just saying, look at all the stuff we've learned and look at all these species that have been found and things like that. It, people tend to remember it better when it's associated with an individual and some emotions, but I'm terrible at telling those kinds of stories. <laughs> well, also having visuals and being able to show comparisons to show change and even talk about it, you know, changing color, changing growth, things like that can help. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, science fact can be more interesting than science fiction in many cases. Oh, for sure. Like Honey Badger. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Honey Badger doesn't care. They don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're telling your story or science story, be sure to share your passion. You can share struggles that you had and also share your facts and figures. Next up, we got an email from Justin on the Missing Compies podcast, which just as a warning is not clean. So if you're only interested in clean podcasts, you might want to... You mean adult content? Shy away. Well, like profanity and stuff like that. Uh, it was adult content. It sounds so much worse. Oh, no, I didn't <laughs> yeah. mean it like that. Yeah, just not clean. They cover some of the differences between the Jurassic Park book and movies i.e. the missing compies, because if you're <laughs> familiar with the Jurassic Park book, it starts with a compsignathus that kind of gets discovered, and they look at it, and they're thinking, wait, this should have been extinct, but this is clearly a modern animal. It's not a fossil. So that's kind of what leads them into discovering Jurassic Park and getting involved with the whole thing. It's really interesting, because I think Sabrina and I talked about this what would that be, almost two years ago now probably, when we were talking about the Jurassic Park book and how the book, the first book, includes a lot of the things that are in all three of the first Jurassic Park movies. Like they kind of left things out of the first movie and they would bring in little bits and pieces here and there that were actually in the original book, even though it was supposed to be about the second book or you know, Jurassic Park 3 doesn't even have a book. <laughs> and they even mentioned that Jurassic World seems to be more like the original Jurassic Park because in the book they described how the Jurassic Park was supposed to be like a theme park and it had swimming pools and all these activities and things like that, which is how the Jurassic World Park is depicted, whereas in the original Jurassic Park movie, it's depicted as just like a giant zoo with a bunch of dinosaurs in it. I thought that was a really good observation. And they also noticed some potential clues and similarities between the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom movie and some of the things that were in Jurassic Park as well. So now we're five movies in and they might still be grabbing little pieces out of the original book, which is pretty awesome. So if you're interested in learning some more about the differences between the book and the movie and other Jurassic Park stuff, The Missing Compies might be the podcast for you, along with ours. Don't stop listening to us. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of dinosaur events going on. This Saturday, January 20th, the Frost Museum of Science in Miami, Florida is throwing a big party fundraising event called the Big Bang Sonic Odyssey. And the whole museum will be open. There's going to be activities on the rooftop, a silent disco so as not to disturb the animals, and a beer garden. And inside will be live music from the University of Miami's Frost Symphony Orchestra as well as DJs. And there's going to be a VR experience and some special programming in the planetarium. 
as well as open bar, food tastings, and you can take pictures with all kinds of animals. So the event is to raise money for the museum's education initiatives, and doors open at 8 p.m., and tickets cost $150. If you're in Miami and you go, please tell us about it. It sounds like a really fun party. Yeah, that sounds cool. I wonder what the Frost Orchestra is like. They play all, like, ice instruments, you think? Is that a bad joke? Um, yeah, it's not the greatest. Oh. <laughs> Good try. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> There's a dino expo at Alberton Civic Hall in Alberton, South Africa from February 2nd to 3rd, and you can see Vitz University original rock fossils, walk on a Jurassic tour, see animatronic dinosaurs, and more. Cool. I think they're the ones that the university that was involved with the CT scanning of that massospondylus. Yeah, they do a lot of really great stuff with dinosaurs. I think they might be the main one in South Africa, actually. I think so. At least that we know of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Dippy the Diplodocus he's either started his tour or he's going to start really soon. Uh, one of the stops is at Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, and he'll be there from May 26th until September 9th. Admission to the museum's free, but there's an expectation that's going to be very popular, so the museum's recommending that you book tickets in advance. And on June 7th and 14th, there's going to be this shared dinner party where you can dine with Dippy. It's kind of expensive. It costs 700 pounds per table Oof. for a table of 10, and it includes drinks, food, a table decoration, and a Dippy-themed gift. I guess that's not actually that bad, because that's only 70 pounds a person. And if it includes dinner and drinks. And a gift. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually not bad. <laughs> yeah. You can also rent a room with Dippy and have drink and dining packages for 50 to 100 people at 1,800 pounds. So if you want to throw a party, I guess, <laughs> with Dippy. Just like that reminds me of that story from the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. Yeah. With eating inside that, what was it, the iguanodon or something mm -hmm. like that? That's great. <laughs> Next, the Antarctic Dinosaur Exhibit is coming to the Field Museum in Chicago, Illinois on June 15th, and it'll be around until next January, so you've got plenty of time. The exhibit's in collaboration with the Natural History Museum of Utah and Salt Lake City and other institutions, and it's a traveling exhibit. It's going to show Antarctic dinosaurs such as Cryolophosaurus, Glacialosaurus, and two juvenile prosauropods. And after it goes to the Field Museum, it'll go to California and Utah, so hopefully, Garrett, we get a chance to see it. We don't know where in California yet? No. Ah. Hopefully it's somewhere. <laughs> it could be Cal Academy. Could be. In other news, in Missoula, Montana, thieves stole a baby dinosaur from Sinclair's. And it happened during a power outage due to a storm. It's this three-foot-tall green sauropod made of aluminum. And there's a reward for the dino's safe return. So hopefully soon. I didn't realize Sinclair's were in montana never the, everywhere the only place we've ever seen one i thought was in wyoming i think we've seen a bunch but huh. i can't remember where interesting it's a gas station that has a green dinosaur as a mascot kind of thing yeah green brontosaurus specifically next birthday's the beginning uh, is a game that allows you to build this cube garden and sprout animals and feed them including dinosaurs really cute looking dinosaurs it's coming to nintendo switch on march 29th and it'll be renamed happy birthdays the trailer is pretty cute it's very mario style or banjo kazooie any of those nintendo games it's just that kind of style hmm and there's these colorful dinosaurs that you can grow and feed. They have carnivores like T-Rex and herbivores like Stegosaurus. 
The game originally launched last year for PS4 and PC, so if you'd like to play on those, you don't have to wait until March 29th. Interesting. Yeah. Birthday's the beginning. That's a really weird title for a cube-sprouting animal game. The beginning, I guess. Oh, no, yeah. No, that makes sense because if they're, they've just started. So it's like the literal birthday, like birth date? Yeah. <laughs> but then when it's renamed to Happy Birthdays, that makes less sense to me. Is the beginning because they're old animals? Like it was the beginning of birthdays? It's not just dinosaurs. It's all kinds of animals. Prehistoric creatures mostly? No. Huh. I don't think so. Weird. And last, we've got another T-Rex costume story. Steve Moore, who's a volunteer firefighter at Fairfield Hose Company in Erie, Pennsylvania, showed up on New Year's Day in the T-Rex costume that his wife had bought him for Halloween and then wore it to plow the parking lot. In the video, he's riding a four-wheeler plowing five feet of snow. Jeez. And part of it, he's joyriding just in circles. <laughs> he looks like he's having a good time. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Nasutoceratops, which was a request from Tegan via YouTube, so thanks. It's a basal centrosaurine ceratopsian that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now southern Utah in the U.S., and its name means large-nosed horned face. It was found in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and the holotype was found in 2006 during the Kaiparowitz Basin Project. It was named and described in 2010 by Eric Carl Lund as part of his thesis, who named it Nasutoceratops titusi, but it was an invalid nomum ex dissertation. 
In 2013, Andrew Farkey and Catherine Clayton named it the Valid Way and changed the name a little bit to Nasutoceratops. I hadn't heard of that version of an invalid nomen before. <laughs> yeah, through his thesis, I that guess. M- must be Latin for it wasn't in the right dissertation kind of thing. Wasn't the right publication. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's only one species. It's Nasutoceratops titusi. And the species name is in honor of Alan Titus, monument paleontologist at Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument for his years of research collaboration. And so far, Nasutoceratops and Diabloceratops are the only centrosaurines found in southwest U.S. Centrosaurines may not have been as common in the southwest of the U.S. than Laramidia, possibly because of geological barriers. Nasutoceratops was a large quadrupedal herbivore. It was about 14.8 feet, or 4.5 meters long, and it weighed 2.5 tons. It may have been slow and lived in herds for protection, Some skin impressions were found, and they have a pattern of large hexagonal scales with smaller triangular scales. The skull was about 4.9 feet, or 1.5 meters long, and it had a short snout and rounded horns above its eyes, somewhat similar to modern cattle, according to Dr. David Hone. The horns were kind of bull-like, where they point forwards and outwards, and curve inwards, and then point upwards. The horns reach to almost the tip of its snout. They're the longest horns of all centrosaurines found so far. And the brow horns were about 40% the total length of the skull. That's really long. And there might have been keratin on top of that, making them even longer. Yes. Think of it. (laughs) They also had cheek horns that were about 3.3 inches or 85 millimeters long, which are the largest known of centrosaurines. These horns may have been used for display or to signal dominance and to fight rivals as well as for defense. It also had a low, narrow horn on its nose snout, which was large. And their large snout probably didn't help it with its sense of smell, since the olfactory receptors were actually further back in the head. It had pneumatic elements, holes, in its nasal bones, which is unique, and it had a circular skull frill as well as osteoderms on the edge of the frill that were shaped like crescents. The area where Nasutoceratops lived was an ancient floodplain with lots of swamps, ponds, and lakes, and it was wet and humid with a lot of life. I can guess how it died. (laughs) It was not a (laughs) floodplain. Yeah. (laughs) Other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place include Dromaeosaurids, the Trudontid, Talos, the Ornithomimid, Ornithomimus, Tyrannosaurids, like Albertosaurus and Teratophonius, Ankylosaurids, Hadrosaurs, such as Parasaurolophus and Gryposaurus, and other Ceratopsians, like Utahceratops and Cosmoceratops. And other animals included sharks and rays, frogs, salamanders, turtles, lizards, crocodilians, and early mammals. And if you'd like to see a Nasuceratops, you can see the skull at the Natural History Museum of Utah. We saw that. We saw a whole bunch of skulls there. Yeah, I think that must be on that wall with all the other Ceratopsian skulls. It's so cool. Yeah. And our fun fact of the day is that fossilization does not just happen with decay-resistant material. There's a recent paper published in Bioessays by Luke Perry and others, and Basically, they're just sort of informing everybody that you can't just simply extrapolate from lab experiments what rots and then expect those types of things not to show up in the fossil record because there are examples of some things that really don't rot, like notochords, and notochords are sort of like a pre-spinal cord. It's like a 
rigid, semi-rigid thing that goes down the middle of a almost vertebrate, hadn't quite evolved vertebrae yet, and it gave that structure and symmetry and things like that to the animal. And those don't really decay, but we very rarely see them preserved. Whereas some things which are decay prone, like nervous systems, often do fossilize, or more often at least than notochords. So it's a really complex process where the fossilization potential has to do with a lot of both biological and geological processes and what order they need to happen in and how likely those things are to happen in that order in order to fossilize. Sounds good. <laughs> and on that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Also, you should check our growing community out on Patreon at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.